Legal Toolkit with Jared Correa. With guest Rob Joyner, we explore the artier side of life. And then, how much have you really considered the Zagnut candy bar? The answer, obviously, is not enough. But Jared's going to catch you up. But first, your host, Jared Correa. It's time for the Legal Toolkit Podcast, which means that I just yelled at my family to be quiet so I could record this episode. I thought I told you to shut the fuck up. And yes, it's still called the Legal Toolkit Podcast, even though I do actually know what needle nose pliers are. Just don't ask me if I've ever used them before. I'm your host, Jared Korea. You're stuck with me because Principal Max Anderson was unavailable. He snapped because his wife was a dirty, dirty tramp. I'm the CEO of Red Cave Law Firm Consulting, a business management consulting service for attorneys and bar associations. Find us online at redcavelegal.com. I'm the COO of Gideon Software, an intake platform for law firms. Learn more and schedule a demo at gideonlegal.com. Now, before we get to our interview today, with Rob Joyner of Center Base, I want to take a moment to talk about working from home. Or perhaps not. You know, it's kind of funny how quickly people forget the COVID-19 pandemic. You remember that? That started at the end of the last decade. And now we're already halfway into the next decade. Yeah, bro, it's almost 2025. Pretty whack, honestly, if you ask me. But as I mentioned, folks have short memories. And law firms have started to backslide a bit on some of the traction they picked up during and after the pandemic. If you're interested, one particular area of backsliding concerns the decreasing flexibility around work from home arrangements within law firms. So look, knowledge workers being required to go into an office to sit in front of a different computer was always stupid, especially when a commute was involved. That's just a straight-up waste of time and resources. And aside from the death and destruction wrought by the pandemic, yeah, that was pretty shitty. Other things were going about as well as they ever had for employees. Everybody was making money. They didn't have to spend any of it. They were chilling at home. I almost bought a fucking zebra. Get this. It turns out that people who work in front of a computer can work in front of any computer, including the ones in their own homes. Not only that, those folks usually work more when they work from home. And supportive technologies like web conferencing. Have you heard of Zoom and asynchronous communication platforms? Have you heard of Slack? Can supplement traditional in-office conversations. Now, when the pandemic hit and everybody started sheltering in place, folks were like, how about that? This actually works. And it was pretty simple to make the transition. It's almost like people should have been working from home the whole time and not in the office. Fast forward to the start of 2024 and law firm owners are asking their staff, attorneys and administrators to come back into the office physically for an increasingly higher number of weekly days. Monday turns into Monday and Tuesday. Monday and Tuesday turn into Monday through Wednesday. It could be that people are back in the office five days a week at some point in the near future. So basically obvious question, why? Now, I'm old enough to know that lots of times people don't have a real reason for doing things. That's called bullshit. And generally speaking, the harder people argue, the less confident they feel about their reasoning 
or the fact that it probably doesn't exist. Maybe they just want to do the thing they're doing, and that's enough reason for them. Or maybe, just maybe, they're resistant to change and want to go back to the way things were because that's the way they felt more comfortable. So I'll be perfectly honest with you. When I tell you that I've never heard anyone give me a truly legitimate reason for why knowledge workers need to be in an office, like ever, that's the real deal. The closest that anyone has ever come was to suggest, and actually several people have suggested this, that the same camaraderie and professional development inside the office doesn't happen outside the office. Good Lord, is there a more lawyerly thing to say ever? But that's just really a failure of imagination. The new networking and professional development gets done online anyway, and is frankly a better approach. Now, I'm not saying you need to be a hermit and never leave your home, although that would be fucking great, but there's no reason your staff can't work from home and come in for like a quarterly in-person session or retreat, for example. Just make sure you give people a reason to come in, like buy them pizza or something like that. Little Caesars is the shit, but I guess we could do Pizza Hut if necessary. So... If you're calling people back into the office or thinking about it, let's just take a minute to calculate the cost. Not for nothing, but if you still own or rent one of those big downtown office buildings, maybe that's not the best use of your budget. Now, if I owned or leased a large office building in a major city at the outset of the pandemic, which I definitely did not, I would have put a plan in motion to dump that lease or sell that building as soon as I could have. Once it became clear that work from home was the thing that worked, in the grandest such experiment on the subject ever conducted. Not a lot of people working from home on their computers during the Black Death. You just don't need to maintain the cost of an office building any longer. And even as law firms are bringing back attorneys and staff, almost nobody's back five days a week. So at best, you're clearing, what, 40% of the benefit of your physical space? That's just not a good business decision. Therefore, you should be making plans to dump the obligation or, or, wait for it, Use it in an entirely different way. There's lots of different ways you can rent space out in your building or sublease it. You could hotel specific offices. You could offer external folks co-working spaces. Yeah, there are people who aren't necessarily knowledge workers who need to come in. Or you could take advantage of the firms that do want to bring their knowledge workers into the office. You could set up a mail drop. You could allow a coffee shop to open on the first floor, you know, for those other suckers who actually make their people come into the office. Yeah, those motherfuckers are definitely going to need some coffee. The other thing about requiring staff to be in office is that for those folks to come into an office on a weekly basis, they need to be housed in your general locality. Now, this is just math, but that necessarily means that you're limiting your employee and contractor pool. If you don't have an in-office requirement or alternatively only require attendance at less regular intervals, like we talked about before, you can hire attorneys anywhere within the jurisdictions you operate. Now, not for nothing, but you could also use remote lawyer staff as a way to expand the jurisdictions in which you operate. Hey, how about that? And you can also hire non-lawyer staff from anywhere, like literally anywhere in the world. Choosing from a larger group of potential employees means that you'll likely have better options for hiring. Geography is just a circumstance. It doesn't mean anything when it comes to competence. So if you don't require in-office attendance, that means that you literally have your pick of the best workers you can find. Hell, I'd take my chances with those improved odds. Now, with respect not only to the potential employees you could have, but also with respect to the employees you currently have, you should know that the jig is up. 
There's no more mystery as to whether things can be done differently. Everyone just lived through a period where employees and contractors worked from home for a full two years straight. And now you're going to tell people with a straight face that they have to come back to the office. No, they fucking do not. And they know it. So why are you being disingenuous? Not only that, but while these other law firms keep trying to encroach on the work from home status of their staff, you can create a competitive advantage for your law firm by offering more flexibility and more opportunities to work from home. Especially for younger employees who value flexibility and who don't treat their jobs as sacrosanct in the same way that boomers and Gen X members have, work from home, the most flexible of schedule flexibility, is perhaps the most important benefit you can offer. Full stop. And because it's such a significant competitive advantage for law firm owners to offer work from home entirely or at higher levels than other law firms, you should embellish it, promote it, publicize it, talk about it whenever you can. You're the shit. You know, office space ain't what it used to be. But don't fight it. Lean into it. Use it for other purposes. Call me. We'll talk all about it. Now, before we talk with Rob Joyner of Centerbase about onboarding legal technology and his flourishing side hustle as an artist, oh, and some AI, listen to these messages from our sponsors, all of whom we love unconditionally, unless they get involved in some really weird shit. Partner with Rankings.io, the marketing agency for law firms that want results, not excuses. With flat rates for Google ads, a track record ranking attorneys for the most competitive terms on Google, and a team always easy to reach by phone, even during off hours, Rankings.io is the agency of choice for firms that want the rankings, traffic, and cases other law firm marketing agencies just can't deliver. Visit Rankings.io for a free consultation and start seeing your firm grow. Simplify. With Cosmolex, the only fully integrated practice management solution. Everything you need, accessible anywhere. Trust and general accounting is built in, so you don't need QuickBooks. Cosmolex's Money Finder reminds you to bill for work you put into client matters so you don't leak money. That's messy. Lower cost, better business, and less frustration. Yes, please. It's all built in with Cosmolex. Free trial and... Take 20% off your first year at Cosmolex.com. Okay, everybody, we're back at it. Let's get to the meat in the middle of this legal podcasting sandwich. Today's meat is corned beef, which is basically salt-cured brisket, if you didn't know. There's no actual corn in it, so I feel kind of robbed. Though it is a main ingredient, corned beef hash, which is very underrated. All right. Let's interview our guest. We have today a first-time caller on the Legal Toolkit Show. It's Rob Joyner, the Senior Vice President of Business Development at Centerbase. Rob, how are you? I'm great, and thanks for the uh, explanation on corned beef. Corned beef hash is delicious, but like, I guess if we were both like actively seeking out eating corned beef hash on a regular basis, we might be talking from a hospital ward. So, uh, let's do something else. <laughs> I've been I've been looking forward to having you on the show for a long time. So we're going to talk a little bit about a great hobby that you have. That's a tease, everybody. That's coming up next. But let's start with what you're doing now. Full time work. You're at Centerbase. You've been there for a little while. 
And if folks have known you from there, your roles changed a little bit over the course of time. So like, you want to give me like the CenterBase story? Yeah. CenterBase is a, a growth and management platform for mid-sized law firms. So we Ooh, specialize nice. in the, the mid-market. I started there 10 years ago. At the time, CenterBase was just a technology. And what we found 10 years ago was there weren't many cloud products for law firms. And there weren't any that were really robust and flexible, which mm -hmm. is what a lot of law firms are looking for just based on the legacy systems that they were using previously. So I started with CenterBase in sales and I grew with the company. I was our CRO until about two quarters ago, and now I've moved into more of a business development role. And there's some really exciting things going on. So I have the opportunity to go out and meet with people and really educate them on future-proofing their law firms for something that we're seeing right now, which is AI and, and just how AI is about to, AI. to really disrupt the space. I've heard of this AI of which you speak. You just came back from Legal Week in New York? I was is in Legal Week, right? yes. How was it this year? Uh, it was a great show. I will tell you that that thing called AI that you mentioned was probably on <laughs> 50 to 70% of the booths. What was interesting about it was the feedback that I was hearing is people were really looking at what's out there. They're starting to think about it. They're starting to educate themselves, but they're not necessarily ready to make a move. You know, mind mm -hmm. you, for a mid-sized firm or for a larger firm, it's a much bigger move and they can't be as nimble. They can't just, you know, try things out at scale. So a lot of them are looking at what are the different data sources that these products are using? How are they being used? What are the applications? How do we build this into the architecture of our tech stack? So it was, it's, it's fascinating to start having these conversations and hearing how people are thinking about it within their firm. Well, I'm glad you braved the cold for Legal Week because I certainly was not doing that. So you are finding that firms are in monitoring mode right now for AI. Do you think they're close to making purchases or are we kind of far away from that? It's interesting. So we saw when legal tech products went to the cloud, right? It became the wild, wild west. There was so many different options. And then, then we saw market consolidation. I think we're getting into that wild, wild west mode where you mm. see new vendors popping up. You see existing vendors pouring a lot of money into it. Right. And so there's a lot of, a lot of different things going on. Some are just bringing chat GPT into their products. Others are actually doing something with AI. And so I think there's more development to happen. I think by the end of 2024, we're going to have a much better picture of the direction yes. in which AI is going. Some of those that are popping up will go away. And some of the bigger vendors out in the space are going to start having more bigger projects that they've rolled out on AI and larger products around it. Let me follow up on that a little bit, because this is something I talked about on the show the other day. Like, one of the things that I think is really difficult here is figuring out, like, okay, what am I going to pay for an AI product as mm -hmm. a law firm? Because it's a wholly different payment model, right? Like, I think what people are used to paying for in legal software right now, AI is going to be more expensive. It may be an overlay on what they're already using. Like, what does that look like? Are you sensing resistance from that, from attorneys, or people have not even addressed that issue yet? It's funny you bring that up. I'm actually looking at it from almost the reverse standpoint. What are the customers going to expect AI to do to their bills? right? Oh, yeah, that's good. Let's look at it from that angle. That, that I think is interesting. So when you look at a more educated GC, for instance, or an in-house team that's working with a, a private practice firm, 
they're going to have certain expectations of firms using AI. You know, this is making you more efficient. What does this mean for my bill? So when we're talking about future-proofing firms, for us, these managing partners and these partners that are coming in seat now, right, that are associates, younger partners, they're going to really have to look at AI and think about their firm more as a business than a traditional law firm, right? They're going to have to look at margins, profitability. Where do I put resources? How do I use technology to make me as efficient as possible? And, And that's different than the last generation of attorneys or managing partners, Oh, had viewed sure. technology. So it's going to be an interesting ride over the next few years. I think that's a good point you make. It's kind of more embedded than right. other technologies have been. All right. So let's talk about this notion of like future proofing the law firm, because this is kind of something you've been talking about a lot lately. Some of that involves AI, but it's broader than that. Right. So if I want to future proof my law firm as an attorney, what should I be thinking about? Yeah. So when you look at mid sized law firms, there's a lot of them that are still not on cloud-based technology. They're using the same technology that they invested in some in the late 80s, in the 90s, early 2000s, right? And a lot of these are are server-based software. So when we're talking about future-proofing, I made a point earlier that it's like the wild, wild west out there in AI. People aren't ready to make decisions yet. But think about your core tech stack right now. You have your billing and accounting software. You have your legal research. You have your document management. You might have some specific solutions geared towards different practice areas. You know, when you're thinking about future-proofing, are those systems in a place where you're going to be able to work with your IP, right, your content, your, your client information? Are you going to be able to work with those within an AI environment? So what that means when you're looking at products, one, is it a, the vendors you're working with on those core areas of your firm, are they cloud-based? Do they have open APIs? Do they have an initiative themselves for AI, right? Because if you're still on a, a server-based software, say in six months, the markets progress quite a bit and it's time to make that switch and really bring AI into the firm. I don't think it's going to be mm-hmm. that fast, but yeah, yeah, say yeah. that happens, right? And you're still on a server-based software. We'll just use what Centerbase does, the billing and accounting, the practice management. If you're having to make that change to your core system of record, right, and then bring AI on, you're 18 months behind your competitors. Yeah, that's the process to that. (laughs) So you need to start thinking about it. You need to start having those conversations. You need to start architecting what your future will look like from a tech stack within a firm. Because I think AI could do more to legal tech than going to the cloud did, right? Over the last 10 or so years. Oh, it's certainly the most progressive thing that's happened since that by a right. wide margin. I think you're right. Yeah, I, I, I don't think it's a fad either. So I should ask you, like before we leave this topic, what's going on at Centerbase? Any new updates over there, features? And are you guys, I'm assuming you're looking at AI, but now I don't want you to get in trouble. So yeah, just talk about what you can talk about. <laughs> Sure. So Centerbase is doing a lot of really exciting things right now. I'm more excited about what we're doing right now than I have been in quite a while. You know, we just made an announcement a few weeks back. We've come out with a new built-in document management system. So it's in the core platform. We're wrapping it around the Microsoft environment. So we're wrapping it around the tools that attorneys are using all day long. The back end is actually using SharePoint. But Since it's part of our core product, we're going to be able to use things like workflow capabilities to make you more efficient in how you're routing documents, how you're getting, you know, signatures or or following up 
on those documents with clients. We're going to be able to do things like automatically capture your time, right? Which is one of our core value propositions is we can capture up to about six hours per timekeeper per month right now. And we're going to be able to do more and more of that with a firm as they begin to use our document management and email management within the platform. We're going to continue to expand on that and wrap around the core products that you're using. We're going to be a platform, right? So when you look at a lot of the options on the market right now, a lot of them are just software. They're your billing and accounting software. But we're going to be that core platform that's not only going to do a lot of the core functions built into Centerbase itself, but it's going to be able to connect to all the, the applications you're using. So you're able to leverage that data, the workflows, the automated time capture, and then get your reporting and make your business decisions from using our technology. Nice. All right. I guess we're waiting on the AI stuff. <laughs> the AI Make we're sure working the on as well. Tell. <laughs> the AI we're working on as well right now. So you'll hear some announcements about that throughout the year. Nice. But we haven't we haven't made any formal announcements there yet. All right. Let's talk about something else you're engaged in regularly, which is getting law firms onboarded onto new software. Yes. So what's the trigger point for that? Is it like, hey, I don't want to have a server anymore? Or do you find that there are other specific reasons why people are like, I need something different? There are a lot of reasons why firms are looking at cloud-based software. I would say the easiest one is yes, we want to get off our server or the software we're using right now is no longer supported. There's a lot of other reasons as well. For instance, our billing process right now is not very efficient. We feel like we have time leakage within the firm, so we're missing time that we could be capturing and we want a cloud-based software to do that. You see reporting, right? And being able to make those business decisions. Do our managing partners have the visibility they need in order to grow the firm? Yeah. So it's all over the board, but yes, there's so many that are still on server-based software and are just trying to get to the cloud. You can serve your clients better when you're on the cloud, right? I call it the Amazon effect. Mm-hmm. Your, your clients want answers right now, right? As soon as they need something, they want the answer right then. And so on a cloud-based application, you're able to work from home. You're able to get to it from your mobile device. It gives you the ability to serve your clients better. So much easier to discover all that stuff. One thing I think is really interesting is that in legal and other places, like there are more generations working in a single workspace right now than ever before. It's kind of crazy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like 70 and 80 year old attorneys, usually in positions of choice making, working with like a lot younger attorneys. Like, how do you manage that? It's really hard, I feel like, to get people from different generations with different values. Like, I'm not talking about like ethical values, but like values of how they work on the same page with this stuff. Like, how do you overcome that? It's tough. It's something we talk about too. If you get people involved in change and they feel like their opinion is heard, it's much easier to get them to buy in. A lot of the times you'll hear a partner group decide, hey, we want to make this change. They'll assign it to a member of their their administrative staff, go figure out what we're going to do, and then come back with it. If I'm that administrator, I'm pushing back some, and Mm -hmm. I'm trying to get the partners involved earlier on because I've found that when they're part of the process, you tend to have a successful project versus when you wait and get them involved at the end. From a generational standpoint, you have to think about what's motivating them, right? If you're a partner that's about to retire, and I'm going to you, Jared, and you're a partner, (laughs) and I'm asking you to spend X amount of dollars on a system that's not 
<laughs> right. Going to do too much for you. You have to think about that. And, you know, maybe it's, hey, this system, again, is going to help us capture more time, right? And what that's going to mean for you is as you're retiring out or as you're still a partner, you're going to see that in your your bonus or your split at the end of the year. With a young, the younger generation, right, some of it's about lifestyle. I'll stick a lot on of time. That. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'll stick on time capture because it's one of my favorite things. Mm-hmm. You know, I always talk about it's it would be hard to be in a position where you're having to write down every minute of your day, right? Yeah. One thing for the younger attorneys is, hey, it's going to be a better lifestyle. You're not having to do that. The system's capturing your time, right? You can go home on time, you can see your family, you can have a life outside the firm. So it's just about figuring out what motivates different people just like anything else within a business and positioning it properly. Excellent. All right. One more question for you. Okay. I think like the biggest objection I hear from people in terms of new software implementation is none of the stuff we talked about. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I think it's more like I've got all this data. How do I move it around? Like, especially like if I don't even really know where it is right now. So how do you approach that? And do you see it the same way or do you just glide over that? (laughs) It's interesting because there's a bunch of different perspectives on it. Some vendors... Mm -hmm. They'll only allow you to bring over minimal data. Yeah. And others will let you bring over that full history of data. It depends on where your current tech stack is as well, right? Do you have a server that you, is it end of life or is it, is it going to keep running for a few years where you yeah. can keep that data in your legacy system and reference it from time to time? We offer at Centerbase, we offer everything from a basic starting balance migration all the way to your full history with your journal entries and all that. Mm. I find that somewhere in between is usually the best option. Imagine this, Jared, you're moving to a new house and you're like me, you're a parent, right? Mm. There's tons of junk you have, I'm sure, in your house. <laughs> I'm looking at it right now. Go on. Right? Right? So, <laughs> Tell me more. <laughs> so, so if you've been on a system for 20 years, it's like living in a house for 20 years. Are you going to yeah. pack up everything, all your junk, and move it to the new house, right? (laughs) Or are you going to start out in a cleaner environment? I hesitate to say start from scratch, but in a better place. And so usually there's a middle ground there. One that we often push people to do is bring over just your your open bills into Mm -hmm. a billing system. Don't bring over that full history. All your closed matters you can access usually in your old system. Just bring over those that are still open in the detail there then you're not gunking up and junking up your system from day one. It's hard to bring over that data. And a lot of the times the updates you did over time caused issues within that data as well. So it's just, it's a nightmare to convert and it's going to be harder on you as well. Good stuff, Rob. I knew it'd be good stuff. That's why I brought you on. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Will you hang around for one last segment? Sure. Come on back. All right, everybody, we'll take one final sponsor break so you can hear more about our sponsor companies and their latest service offerings. Then stay tuned, as always, for the rump roast. It's even more supple than the roast beast. Contract automation isn't a trend. It's a strategic imperative. Though big players in the e-sign world will make you believe implementing it will cost you big bucks and more than a few headaches, it doesn't have to be that way. DocuB is an easy-to-onboard, full suite of products that includes e-signature, brilliant workflow capabilities, and AI contract automation at nearly half the price of those out-of-touch behemoths. The one thing DocuB doesn't automate? Their customer service. Visit get.docub.com slash contracts to set up a call with a real live person. 
DocuB will be with you every step of the way. Hey, Guy, what's up? Just having some lunch, Conrad. Hey, Guy, do you see that billboard out there? Oh, you mean that guy out there in the gray suit? Yeah, the gray suit guy. Order up. There's uh, all those beautiful, rich, leather-bound books in the background. That is exactly the one. That's J.D. McGuffin at Law. He'll fight for you! I bet you he has got so many years of experience. Like decades and decades. And I bet, Guy, I bet he even went to a law school. Are you a lawyer? Do you suffer from dull marketing and a lack of positioning in a crowded legal marketplace? Sit down with Guy and Conrad for Lunch Hour Legal Marketing on the Legal Talk Network. Available wherever podcasts are found. Welcome to the rear end of the legal toolkit, everybody. That's right. It's the Rump Roast. We're back. It's a grab bag of short form topics, all of my choosing. Why do I get to pick? Because I'm the host. But this time around, we're not doing a regular old rump roast because I want to talk to Rob about his burgeoning painting career. So let that be a lesson for the rest of you. Get an awesome hobby, and I'll ask you about that instead of torturing you with inane trivia questions, which I love to do. So Rob, you're in a good spot, man. You avoid the regular rump roast. But you're a painter, right? Yes. How'd you get into that, man? Because that is like not something I necessarily expect from a legal tech executive. So what happened? (laughs) You know, it's funny, though. The more people I talk to about the art, the more people I hear from, oh, I actually enjoy it myself, right? Oh, really? Um, So how did I get into it? I got into it when I was in college. I was trying to decorate my space and I could not afford anything for the walls. (laughs) <laughs> and I had a, a friend of mine who I was working with at the time. He said, hey, why don't you just try painting something yourself? And I laughed it off. A few days later, I had some extra time on my hands and I went to the store and I bought a canvas. I bought some paint and the rest is history. So like no training whatsoever. You're just no like, training, I'm going to try this. No YouTube back then. I went to Barnes and Noble. And I would sit there, you know, I I even sold my Xbox at one point to buy art books because I was so broke. And yeah, I just, I learned over the years. All right, Rob, so you're hanging out at Barnes & Noble, you're learning to paint, but how did you develop the style? I don't want to make you blush or anything. And I don't know if you even like this guy, but like when I was looking at your website the other day, I'm like, okay, a little bit of a Jackson Pollock vibe. Yes? No? So this is maybe a little bit. Uh, Jackson Pollock's one of my my favorite artists. Oh, good. I, I a good one. You know, artists feel differently about what I'm about to say, but I don't think there's anything original out there anymore. I think what you do is you find something you like, especially as an artist, as a young artist, and you try to replicate it. And then as you replicate it, you begin to add your own twists and turns, and then it becomes your own style. Early on, I could pull up paintings that look just like Jackson Pollock's, right? Or at least my version, not as good. And that's one of the ways I started, but then it just changed over time, right? As you find new artists, you try new things. And, you know, my technique and the texture that I use in my paintings happened because I was out in my garage painting one day and I couldn't figure out how to finish a piece. And then I looked over at the the shelf and I noticed there were certain supplies over there and I grabbed them and incorporated them in my art and people liked it and they're... The rest is history. So I am no artist. 
So this is a very foreign concept to me. Yeah. But like, you're not just painting, right? You put stuff, other stuff on the canvas too. Like, can you describe the style a little bit? Because I mean, I thought it was fairly unique when I was looking at it. Yeah. So it's heavily textured. So a lot of my paintings are heavily textured, bright colors. From a scale standpoint, a lot of them are at least six feet in length at least width or height. That's huge, I feel like. They're they're big. They're very yeah. big. And I mean, a lot of what I do these days are commissions. People will come to me and say, hey, I want this look. And, and we work together. And for me, art, it's similar to an attorney, I'm, I'm guessing, in the fact that like I can never shut off. I learned that about myself. And so I want to go, go, go all the time. If I haven't accomplished something by like 9 a.m. on a Saturday, I'm I'm stressed out. And so for me... It was about finding something that allowed me to redirect myself and recharge, but still feel like I'm accomplishing something. And and that's what art's really become. It, so it sort of, exercises sort of a different part you. of your brain. Yeah. Yeah. It's a different part of your brain. So how do you handle the commission stuff? Like, cause that's a little bit of like, as an artist, right? You're like, oh, it's my vision and stuff like that. Yeah. And if somebody's like, bro, I want you to use red. Are you just like, nah, I think this would be better in yellow. <laughs> Or do you like, do you just go with it? <laughs> I have my limits for yeah. for requests and I learned early on. So one of the first commissions I was asked to do 15 years ago was a portrait of four different people in camo. And it was a lot of money at the time. It took me a year and I had to give the money back, right? Because Jeez. I just couldn't do it. So I've learned to define that box for me. I was in architecture school before I was in business school. So you'd work 60 huh. to 100 hours on a project. Then you'd stand up in front of the class and have it torn apart. And <laughs> so you learn to have thick skin uh, yeah. <laughs> with something you do. And I find that I've defined the process. It's just like selling anything. I've defined the process. I have a process of how I work through it with my customers. And I ask, okay, what size do you want? What colors do you love? And which colors do you want to have? What colors do you want me to avoid? And then give me the rest of the room in between mm -hmm. to make my own decisions on which way it should go. So I'll get it about 70% done. And then I'll start to provide updates to the customer and we'll work oh, through it sense. until it's done. It makes it really easy. It's fun. Easy for first time collectors as well. Note to self, don't ask Rob to do a family portrait of my entire family wearing camouflage. <laughs> Could you do a portrait of me, like Putin on like the horse, shirtless? Can you make that happen? <laughs> I can make some recommendations for people that can. <laughs> All right, I only got two more questions for you. Go ahead. I think your paintings have some like really interesting names. Like I was on your website, huh. and one of your paintings is called "Your Room Is a Disaster." Is this like some suppressed stuff You're trying to get back at your kids? Like, how do you come? How do you come up with a name like that? Because I have the same issue. <laughs> it, it, so I try not to take the art too seriously. I like to have fun with it. So usually it's the first thing that comes to mind, right? As I'm that looking at a painting and I've been sitting here at the same spot trying to name a painting in the past and my kids have come and asked for a snack, right? <laughs> and so I use that and incorporated that into the name. So a lot of my paintings are named based off of what's going on in my life at the time. That is awesome. Last question for you. You've got a book too, right? You put together like a coffee table book. I did. I did. Right, so, like, what was the inspiration for that? And like, self-publish that? Like, you're working with some company? Like, how does that work? I know it advances the business, but how'd you come to that decision? Yeah, so there was an artist in town that I wanted to meet, and I kept reaching out to him. He didn't reply to me. 
and I realized he was my neighbor. And so <laughs> one morning on a, a Sunday morning, I was playing basketball outside at one of the schools with a group of men. And I noticed he was there with his twin boys. And he's a, a well-established artist around the country. So I saw him there and I said, you know what? This is my shot. So I went up and gave him my 30-second elevator pitch. Nice. And he invited me to his studio. And one of the first things he said is, hey, you become a real artist when you've published a book. So go, go make a book. So I was like, okay. So what I did, I opened up InDesign and I started designing it and I, I self-published it. It took me probably three or four months to get done, but it's just a nice keepsake to have for my collectors to have. And it's a great marketing piece as well. Rob, this has been great. In a second, we'll have info on Centerbase. We'll have info on Rob's artwork. Rob, thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me. Had a lot of fun. If you want to find out more about Centerbase, visit centerbase.com. If you want to find out more about Rob Joyner's artwork, visit paintedjoiner.com. That's P-A-I-N-T-E-D, Joyner, J-O-Y-N-E-R.com, paintedjoiner.com. That may give you the impression that Rob is painting himself, but let me assure you, he isn't. He's definitely painting other shit like large canvases. Now, for those of you listening in Jotham Down, Texas, we've got a Spotify playlist just for you. It's a collection of artistic songs. Sadly, I've run out of time today to talk about Zagnop bars in any great detail. But let me just tell you, Cliff Notes version, they're like shitty Clark bars, but neither is as good as the 100 grand, which is the greatest candy bar of all time. This is Jared Career reminding you not to overdo it with your crankshaft on your Model T. Come on, now you're just embarrassing yourself. you're a lawyer running a solo or small firm and you're looking for other lawyers to talk through issues you're currently facing in your practice, join the Unbillable Hours Community Roundtable, a free virtual event on the third Thursday of every month. Lawyers from all over the country come together and meet with me, lawyer and law firm management consultant Christopher T. Anderson, to discuss best practices on topics such as marketing, client acquisition, hiring and firing, and time management. The conversation is free to join, but requires a simple reservation. The link to RSVP can be found on the Unbillable Hour page at LegalTalkNetwork.com. We'll see you there.